What is going on, guys? Welcome back to another episode of Lost Lifting Talk. If you can hear some noise in the background of today's recording, I apologize. We're still in Mexico, and right next door to us is another condo being built up on the beach. And there's a bunch of construction workers who are pounding away at hammers, they're sawing, they're doing all sorts of stuff. They're drilling, different stuff. So if you hear noise in the background, just that's, that's what it is, and I am sorry. Obviously, I'm not in my normal office back at home because we are still traveling. We got here a week ago, and we actually still have one more week left before we go home. So the plan is to be here for two weeks before going home for the holidays, before our family takes a move out to California to start our lives out there. So if you do hear some noise, that is what's happening in the background. Our trip out here has been really good. Claire and I have been able to spend a good amount of time together. The biggest, the hardest part being completely transparent, and I don't know why I even feel the need to bring this up, but I'm going to, is just keeping a good balance between working and a good balance between um, giving time to the girls as well because we don't get to put ourselves in positions like this very often to where we can give each other a lot of um, our attention each and every day just because at home I'm always working, she's working, we're getting ready to move so that she can start her new career and whatnot too. So finding that balance has been a bit tough. And I was having a conversation about this with one of my buddies, Jeremiah, on a podcast yesterday. We record a podcast monthly and put out a Q&A on each of our shows. You've probably listened to it before if you're an avid listener here. But we were talking about online coaching and how there's business coaches out there who will help online coaches build their businesses that like their business model is helping coaches build their businesses. And they always talk about how as an online coach, it's such a cool job because you can live anywhere you want to. You can live on the beach. You can vacation all of the time and still get your work done and, and just live this awesome lifestyle. When in reality, if you're building a long-term business and you're trying to scale it and you're you're working with a decent amount of people and whatnot you can't just do whatever you want every single day and not have structure and hang out on the beach and and have this successful business like that's a marketing strategy that they use that is definitely not the case whatsoever you still have to have a lot of structure like when i was building up the gym my online business honestly takes more time than my gym business, the brick and mortar business does because there's just a lot more to be done. There's a lot more content to be handled. It's a much closer connection with each client to where we're having conversation back and forth all week long. There's phone calls to be had. There's a lot of content to be created. There's networking to be done. Like my work days are honestly 10 to 12 hours most of the time just on the online side of things. And with the in-person stuff, the gym stuff that I do, the brick and mortar stuff that I do, that's not, that didn't take me near as much time to build up. So that misconception, like you can do whatever you want as an online coach and just travel and hang out and be free. There's some truth to that. Like I'm down here in Mexico, obviously still being able to get all my work done, but there's a lot of stresses with that. Like you can't just travel and have fun and completely enjoy and live carefree. There's a lot of responsibility on your hands as a coach and working with others that requires a lot of structure from you and it requires a big demand from you. You're not gonna be able to sit on the beach and drink pina coladas like, like people like to market, which is just kind of a, a funny thing. But as far as the trip down here, like I said, we've been having a really good time. I absolutely love to travel. And we're going to get into the Q&A here in just a second. But as far as traveling goes, that is where Lost and Lifting 
honestly was stemmed from the name lost and lifting actually came from the idea of it was me, my wife and I who started it before we were even married. And the idea with lost and lifting was to travel and stay fit while blogging about it. And somehow we were going to figure out a way to make money from that. Maybe like starting a YouTube or, or something like that. That was the original idea was to travel and work out, stay fit and blog about it and potentially make YouTube videos about it. And so today, obviously, that's not what the brand is, right? The brand is more about helping people find their confidence through training and nutrition, helping them find their best body compositions. Um, so the dynamic of things has changed. And obviously, my wife isn't necessarily part of the brand anymore. It's just me who took it over and runs the whole operation. But um, to be down here, and I mentioned this on the podcast with Jeremiah yesterday, to be down here and traveling and have the brand where it's at with that idea five years ago is a super cool like realization to have like to follow through with something that was once just an idea and a dream and now to be in a position to where it's actually come to life and we are down here in Mexico and we are hanging out it's really cool to just see like that full transition to like actually be traveling and having the brand um, be what it is 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 a cool realization to have and Traveling is something that we have always absolutely loved. My wife and I, we, we don't get to do as much of it now, obviously, but like we've made trips to Thailand. We've made trips to Thailand or to, excuse me, to China. We've made trips to Costa Rica um, and we, we plan to go on trips all the time. Obviously, we both get busy, so we don't do it as often, but it's something that we absolutely love is to get out of the country and experience different cultures. And I think that there's something super important to doing that. It just helps you realize how little of a piece of the pie that you actually are. When you're home and you're in your normal day-to-day routine and you're around just like the normality of your regular life, it gets really easy to think that you are the most important thing in the world and you can build up anxieties, you can build up um, stresses and different things. But as you get out and as you go into different cultures and you're kind of the odd man out in different cultures to where you, it's kind of an, always an uncomfortable situation for you because you're the one that doesn't necessarily speak the language or you're the different person in the situation. It helps give you a perspective on life that I think is really important. It helps it helps you realize just how minuscule you actually are, just how little of the piece of the pie that you actually are. And what I'm getting at is helps you realize that you really aren't that important in the grand scheme of things on this huge world that we're all in. And so to go to these different places, it always gives me a little bit of anxiety to leave the country and go somewhere else before I go. Like I remember before I went to Thailand, I was, I almost had an anxiety attack. I was like, I was telling my wife, I don't think we should go. I think we should go back home and get Charlie and just hang out at home. And I, I don't think we should go on the trip. And then as we get on that flight, a 14 hour flight and you sit down and you start going, you kind of still having those feelings. You're not sure you're uncomfortable because you know, you're going to this different place to where you're not necessarily going to fit in. But once you get there and get sunk into the culture and can get comfortable being uncomfortable, I think it helps you build a perspective just on experiences, on realizing that that you aren't that important in life. And so you don't have to take yourself so dang seriously. Your stresses aren't that big of stresses. Your anxieties aren't that big of worries in the long haul. And so just enjoy what you have because the world is big and there's a lot of different people. There's a lot of different experiences. There's a lot of different cultures. And as you see that, it kind of helps you put a different perspective on your life. And that's why I feel that travel is important to do. 
at least once or twice a year to different countries where cultures are different because it's easy to lose that perspective when you get back home and get comfortable in your own situations. And I know that I do this. I get home and my worries become the biggest worries. My stresses become the biggest stresses. My anxieties mean the most. And when I leave and I get myself in different cultures and realize that I'm really not that important, I go home and I'm just happier. I take myself less serious. I am more successful. I am a better person to be around because I gain this new perspective when I'm gone. So that's why I love travel so much. And that's why we try to do it as often as we can with our careers kind of taking off in different ways. We obviously haven't been able to do as much of it, but we try to. And just as a a quick story, as we get into this Q&A today, I wanted to share a little bit about that and where Lost and Lifting came from, because it wasn't always about finding your confidence through lifting and nutrition. It was about my wife and I wanting to be able to travel the world and show people how to stay fit at the same time. Obviously that fell through and plans changed, but um, coming down here to Mexico was kind of a realization at this point to be working full time with Lost and Lifting and being able to travel a little bit. It was just something that was really cool and felt like full circle. But with all that said, let's just hop into today's Q&A episode. All right, question number one. Pull it up. Any suggestions for lifting shoes? I love Olympic weightlifting, but I also want them to be good for squats. I have met cons, but not impressed with mine. So for myself, I have a few different shoes that I will regularly use when training. First and foremost, I have a pair of Romelios, which are heel elevated with a really strong and supportive sole that I like to use for squats. And then I like to use for movements like RDLs or stiff leg deadlifts, things like that. And then if I'm deadlifting, whether it's sumo, conventional, trap bar, or any other just leg movements, really, I actually really do like the Metcons. Um, I've had a good experience with them. I have a few different pairs, and every pair that I've had has been good. It's honestly probably one of the more functional shoes that you could get that's going to be best for all different types of training. Like if you were to buy just one pair of shoes for training, I would always say it would either be a Metcon or it could even just be a Chuck, your Converse, the um, like the skinny Converse that are old school that are still in fashion. Those are a really solid training shoe. They're good for squats because they have that solid sole that doesn't have a lot of um, instability there. They are good for deadlifts because they keep you closer to the floor. And again, they don't have a lot of instability there. And they're good for the rest of your, your training as well just because they're a functional shoe. They're not great for like running or conditioning or anything like that. But as far as training goes, the Chuck can be a really, really solid shoe that can support all different types of training. But for myself, I'm kind of bougie when it comes to this, honestly. I have a few different types of shoes. So I have the Romelios that I really like to use when I'm squatting on leg days. And then like if I go into deadlifts or different types of, of leg movements, I'll switch into, I honestly like to wear the Romelios, or excuse me, I like to wear the Metcons quite often, but sometimes I'll wear the Chucks as well. And then like if it's just a upper body day to where like I'm not having to get stability on my feet or anything like that, I'll just wear a normal running shoe because it's not going to affect my training on my upper body necessarily. But a couple of things to stay away from in terms of shoes that I would take into consideration if I were you is I wouldn't be wearing running shoes to try to squat in or try to do deadlifts in. And I see a lot of people do this. And honestly, 
it's going to put you in a more susceptible situation to get injured or it's not just going to allow you to use as much weight. When you're lifting, you want to make sure, especially with your lower body, you want to make sure that you're using a shoe that has you relatively close to the ground in most instances and doesn't have a lot of cushion or given it. You want a shoe that's really solid at the sole um, so that you are more stable on the ground and you don't have a lot of move around. Like if you're wearing Nikes that have a big cushion on them or um, a lot of the Adidas like the NMDs, they have a lot of cushion on the bottom and so as you get down into your squat and you've got heavy weight on your back, your sole of your foot can move around and shift with where you put the weight of your foot down which can cause instability which could lead to injury or just lead to you not being as strong in that movement or having you mess up your form during that movement. So if you're going to squat, I feel like the best shoe for squatting would be something like a Romelio or Olympic weightlifting shoe because it's going to have a little bit of a raised heel. You're going to be able to sit down into that squat a little bit better and it has a super solid sole to it, which is just going to help give you that stability that you're going to need. If you don't want to buy those shoes, because again, you're not going to want to use those weightlifting shoes, um, the Olympic shoes for every lift, like for your deadlift, you're going to want a a shoe that is going to have you as close to the ground as possible, which um, the Olympic weightlifting shoes like the Romelios are going to have your heel elevated, which isn't going to be um, the best situation for you. So then I would say go with a Metcon or go with um, a Converse for that type of lifting. And really that could be your shoe for all of your other training outside of squats and things like RDLs um, with that elevated heel. So if you just want to choose one shoe, I would say the Metcon or the Converse. If you are wanting to get a little bit more bougie and buy a shoe for squats so that you can sit down to that squat a little bit better with a little bit of that elevated heel, I've had a really good experience with the Romelios and I've really enjoyed it. I've had the same pair for like four years now. I think I got them when I first opened the gym back in 2016 and I'm still wearing them. They're running, they're wearing down. It's obviously time for me to get a new pair um, because they are wearing out and the soles start the bottom rubber on the bottom of the shoe is starting to give out a little bit, but it's been four years and I've gotten really good work out of them, but they are a little bit more pricey. I think they're like anywhere from like 150 to $200, but I know you can get some others like through Reebok or through um, Adidas that are right around that $100 marker. Or if you don't want to have two different pairs of shoes to lift in, you could always just get a pair of Metcons or even a pair of Chucks would be your cheapest option, which are usually around like 40 to $50 is all. So when it comes to shoes, I would make sure that you aren't training legs in a running shoe that has a soft sole that's not going to have as much stability there that can um, just shift your weight around a lot more and mess up your form. I'd make sure that you're using some sort of a shoe that has a strong sole on the bottom of it, keeps you relatively close to the ground just so that you have as much support as possible throughout those movements and you're not putting yourself in a position to get injured and you're keeping yourself in a position to where you're going to be as strong as possible during those lifts. Question number I have a massive imbalance in my right quad, hamstring, and glute from an old ACL tear. How do you recommend trying to balance it out? That's a really good question. Actually, on my TikTok, I just put up a post talking about this a little bit um, and the importance of single leg work. I always talk, people always talk about how your programming should include a push, it should include a pull, it should include include a hip hinge and it should include a squat. But I think you should take this one step further when it goes to your lower body work and one of those main movement patterns should be a single leg squat as as well as a single leg hinge. And the reason for this is when you're working your upper body, you don't really have to 
um, select out like a single arm press and a single arm pull because a lot of our upper body is already worked with dumbbells and already worked with machines that are unilateral um, movements to where you're pulling each side and it has its own resistance profile on each side. It's not machines that are connected together necessarily. So you're getting equal work on both sides. But when it comes to your legs, most of your movements are things like deadlifts or things like squats or things like leg presses um, to where you could really put yourself in a situation to where you're not training each side on its own. And so if you have one side that's stronger than the other on the lower body, it can take over and develop faster than the other side could um, when you're doing all of that bilateral work where you're moving both legs together in all movements. So in your programming, what I make sure to do for basically every single client that I work with is include a decent amount of single leg squatting movement patterns as well as single leg hip hinging movement patterns um, just to make sure none of those imbalances are being created in the lower body. In your situation to where you had an injury and you have one side of your lower body that's a lot bigger than the other side, I would say to do most of your work, not all of it, but a good chunk of your work maybe even like 50 to 75% of it um, with unilateral work. And so what you're going to want to do is match your strong side to your weak side. So if you're doing a Bulgarian split squat and let's say your left leg is weaker than your right, go with your left leg first in that movement. And then you're going to match this the reps that you can complete with your left leg with your right leg so that you're not doing more with the leg that's already stronger um, so that you're going to build strength there faster. This is going to give that weaker side a little bit of time to build up to catch up to the stronger side over time. But if you continue strengthening the strong side and the weak side is strengthening as well, but from a lower baseline, you're always going to have that one side that's going to be a lot more dominant than the other. And it's important to note out here is everybody will always have a side that's a little bit stronger um, than another side or a little bit bigger than another side. Like for me, my right arm is stronger than my left arm and my, my right bicep is actually a little bit bigger than my left bicep. But what's weird is my left leg is a little bit stronger than my right leg for some reason. So you're always going to have a little bit of imbalance, but one of the best ways to counteract that is making sure that you're having a good amount of unilateral work included in your programming. And especially for you, if you have one side that is very noticeable due to an injury in the past, I would ramp up your unilateral work and make sure you're always working the weaker side first and matching reps from the weaker side with your stronger side just to help put you in that better position to help build up that strength on the weaker side faster so that it's not as noticeable. Question number three, what's the difference between progressive overload and periodization and what's more important? That's a good question. That honestly, that confused me at one point too. I, I didn't really understand the difference between the two. You always hear people talking about making sure that you're periodizing your training over time and you hear people always talking about how you need to be creating progressive overload in your training over time as well to see progress. And when it comes to periodization, all that is is exactly as it sounds. It's periodizing things over the long term to make sure that you're taking recovery into account, to make sure you're changing things up to keep you um, mentally stimulated throughout and so that things aren't getting too boring, to make sure that you're not um, pushing your body too hard over time. Um, periodization is just basically periodizing your methods and protocols that you're doing to help you get to a goal 
over the long run. And there's a lot of ways to create periodization. You could be going through a hypertrophy phase for a 12-week cycle, and then you could periodize in a strength phase where you're lower reps and lower volume for a, another 12-week cycle, and then back to a hypertrophy phase for a 12-week cycle, and going back and forth so that you're periodizing your goal or you're periodizing what you're doing over the long term to help you get to that um, goal of whatever it is that you have for yourself. And then when it comes to progressive overload, all that progressive overload is, is just improving your training over time. So you getting stronger over time, you doing more reps, you doing more, um, weight, you doing more sets, more volume, you getting better at your form. That's all that progressive overload is. And they both are very important. I would say periodization in terms of changing things up all the time in your training as a beginner, <clears throat> Excuse me. That's not nearly as important. <coughs> Excuse me. As a beginner, periodization isn't nearly as important because you're just getting into training. You just need to get the fundamentals of training down. You don't want to be switching things up too often um, because you're trying to build the skill of the movements you're doing. Um, and not a whole lot should be changing because you're just trying to get things down. But as you get more experienced, periodization becomes more and more of an importance and something that you should be taking into consideration just because the body does get stagnant over time. If you continue to do the same thing over and over and over, after a long period of time, your body's not going to respond to it as well. So if you're running a high volume block and you've been running that high volume for years on end, your body actually might do better by switching it up and running more low volume to maybe you're increasing the amount of weight you're using and you're going lower reps for a while just to give your body a bit of a different stimulus as well as it's going to be good for you mentally to be doing something a little bit different as well um, just because it's going to be something new that might help build up some excitement, build up some motivation to keep you going over the long term. So when you first begin, periodizing things isn't as big of a deal inside of your training. The more advanced that you get, creating periodization systems becomes more and more important. One thing that I like to do is honestly run more of a, a daily undulation periodization, DUP, to where you're periodizing your workout um, every single day. So like for example, so for me, when I'm programming for a lot of people, what I'll do is in their compound movement, we'll keep that lower in a strength um, type rep range. Maybe it's anywhere from like three to six reps. And then their accessory movement, maybe that's more of a little bit of a hypertrophy range to where we're running things in more of like a six to 15 rep range. And then some of the isolation work, maybe it's more of an, an endurance range that um, is a, even a higher rep range. That's 15 to 30 reps. So we're getting this periodization of these different rep schemes and these different goals in one workout to help us get closer and closer um, to a few different goals at the same time. That's one way you can go about it. Or some people I know will like to program, and I've programmed like this as well for certain individuals. They'll start with all relatively higher volume, hypertrophy type volume to where every single workout is ran in a, let's say an eight to 12 rep range over a six to 12 week period. And then the periodization comes in where the next six to 12 week period, we're um, changing it and we're going to run everything in a strength phase to where maybe everything's in a three to eight rep range. And so it's being periodized from block to block as to where you could do it the other way to where you're periodizing inside of each workout, you're periodizing different goals um, for different individuals. And and they're just two different ways to skin a cat. It's what you're going to like most. For myself, honestly, I like daily undulation periodization more because it's just going to help you 
um, have more variety in each training session and keep things a little bit more fun rather than always banging out something in the 8 to 12 rep range every single day, which can just get stagnant over time. If you've got some strength work in the workout, you've got some some hypertrophy work where you're going to get a pump and then you have some more endurance type work in there as well. It just keeps things more interesting in my experience. And honestly, just in my opinion, it keeps those workouts a lot more fun. But periodization can be a million different things. Periodization is kind of like the art to programming, to periodizing different things in to keep you stimulated in it, keep things fun and help you get to your goal overall without getting hurt in the process as well. Like most people, if you've been following straight hypertrophy work for a really long time, you would do, you'd get a lot of benefit from periodizing things out and running more of a strength type block for a four to 12 week period. And if you've been running a ton of strength work for a really long time, it'd be smart for you to, for you to periodize out some hypertrophy work for maybe a six to 12 week period, because it's going to help you get better at whatever that main goal is by spending some time away from it and strengthening something that's going to help you in the long run get closer to that goal. And then, like I said, progressive overload is just creating progress in your training over time, whether you're getting stronger and adding weight, whether you're doing more reps, whether you're doing more sets, whether you're getting better at your form over time, that's all that progressive overload necessarily is. And there's a lot of different ways that you can go about progressive overload. And to get even a little bit more technical, you could you can periodize your progressions. And the more experience that you get in your training, the more that you do have to start taking this into account and you do have to start periodizing your progressions over the long term. There's one progression system that I like to use that's called linear periodization to where you're literally starting with, let's say you're starting with eight reps in week one, then in week two, you're going to add five to 10 pounds, you're going to do seven reps. Then in week three, you're going to add five to 10 pounds, you're going to do six reps. And then in week four, you're going to add five to 10 pounds, and you're going to do five reps. And then you're going to take a deload to where you are um, dropping intensity down, you're maybe only doing three or four reps, you're dropping weight even more, so the intensity isn't quite so high, so that you can wash away any of that fatigue that you have. And again, that's a periodization of your intensity to help wash away fatigue. And then when you come back to um, your training, let's say in week six, well, now you're going to match week one for that eight reps, but you're going to use five to 10 more pounds than you used in week one. In week six, back at that eight reps, and then in week um, seven, you're going to do five to 10 more pounds than you did in week two with for seven reps. So you're doing the same amount of reps, but you're using a little bit more weight. So you're periodizing your progress. You're progressing from block to block rather than you're uh, progressing from workout to workout. So there's a lot of different ways that periodization can work. For anybody that is super interested in this sort of thing, I'd highly recommend reading the Strength and Nutrition Pyramid book by Eric Helms and read the um, the training book. There's one on nutrition and there's one on training. I feel like Eric does a really, really good job of breaking down periodization and the role that it plays in your training, as well as the role that it plays in your nutrition, because you do want to make sure that you're periodizing your nutrition over the long term as well. You don't always want to be in a calorie deficit. You don't always want to be in a calorie surplus. And if you want to get anywhere with your body composition, you don't always want to be at maintenance either. You want to be periodizing that out over the year to help you achieve your best body composition over the long run. So periodization is a big spectrum of everything inside of what you do. It's it's phasing things out over the long term that's going to help you get to your goal more efficiently and in a in a faster manner basically. So hopefully that answers your question. Periodization is 
basically everything. It's periodizing different phases to get to your goal over the long term. And then progressive overload is just creating progress in your training. And if you're not progressing your training over time, your body's not going to be forced to progress either. I talk a lot about this with clients and a lot of people that begin working with me when they go into the gym before working together, a lot of them are just following workouts that they find on social media, through Instagram, through YouTube, to through TikTok, through their own research. And just going into the gym and doing different workouts every single week and don't have any structure really to know if their workouts are actually progressing because they're going in just trying to get a good sweat. And if they're sore, they feel like they worked hard. They chalk that workout up as a success and as if it was what they were supposed to do. But in reality, you should probably be keeping your workouts relatively similar for a decent amount of time and ensuring that you're progressing those workouts. So like I said, if you're doing the bench press for five reps for 135 pounds, well, next week we either want to be trying to do that 135 pounds for six reps, or maybe we want to be trying to do 140 pounds for five reps. So we're increasing something. And if you're progressing your training, your body's forced to progress as well. But if you're not paying attention to those progressions in your training, you're just going to work into the gym and trying to work hard and always doing different things, but you don't know if you're actually progressing your strength and actually progressing your volume. Well, then you don't know if your body's going to actually be progressing as a result of that either. So it's kind of like going in the gym with blindfolds on and just throwing a dart at the at the dartboard and hoping that something sticks and hoping that something works rather than creating real structure inside of your programming and creating different progression schemes over a four-week period and then periodizing out um, what you're doing over the long term. So maybe you're focused on more hypertrophy now, then you move into a little bit of a strength phase, and then when you come back to that hypertrophy phase, you're going to be stronger at those in that hypertrophy phase from going through that strength phase, which is going to help you get to that ultimate goal over the long term of continuing to build muscle. So there's a lot of different ways and a lot of different avenues that you can go down with that. Hopefully that helps clear things up with the difference between periodization and progressive overload. And with that, that is all that we were going to get into today of just coming up on about the 30 minute marker, which we like to keep these episodes right around that 20, 30 minute marker. So I really do appreciate you guys for listening. If you found value in this episode today, I'd be really appreciative if you could take a screenshot, put it on your IG story and tag me in it. That way I can repost it on mine and send you a message personally thanking you for doing so. Again, I really do appreciate you guys. Have an amazing day and I'll talk with you soon.